At this time, I'll ask you to open your Bibles with me. As we dig into God's Word together, we go to Mark chapter 9, and today we finish out this chapter. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 42 to the end of the chapter, verse 50. Mark 9, 42 through 50. I believe it was about 12, 13 years ago where a man by the name of Jason Ben started to question his life. He started to question his work life. He had been hired by a company to do back-end reports, banks that were making high-level transactions. It's about as interesting as you can imagine, he says. But he, he was doing all of these reports for these banks and these high-level transactions. And as he was hired, he was explained how to do his job, and he started working through it. And he, he would open up Microsoft Excel, and he would have to put in all of this information week by week and day by day. And it would take him about six hours of manual labor on that computer program to generate one of these reports. And as he started to think about it, he knew that Microsoft Excel has this back-end feature called macros. And so he started researching them. Some of you might know what this is if you're into computers and things like that. And pretty soon, after a bunch of research, he had whittled down this six-hour process to a matter of minutes and a click of a button, automated, so that he could spend the rest of his time doing whatever else he wanted. And so he, he did that. And for a while, he, he took satisfaction in the fact that he had just saved so much time and was doing all kinds of things he wanted to do in his free time, but then he started to think, if my value to society, to the, the working society of America, can be taken away so easily by a line of code in a computer program, I need to up my skills. I need to increase my, my value to the, the working class in this society. And so what he did was drastic. He quit his job. He moved back in with his parents as an adult. His parents didn't necessarily like that at first, but he was saving the money and he said it was for a short time. And for two months, he decided, I'm going to teach myself to be a computer programmer. I'm going to increase my value. I'm going to be a programmer. Now, I can attest to you as someone who tried to become a computer programmer, this is no easy task. Most people who become a programmer invest at least four years of a college degree, and even then it is extremely competitive. But Jason Ben did this in a way that almost no one I've ever heard of did it. He moved back home and then he took a room in his parents' house that was not being used, moved almost everything out of it, put a desk and a chair in that room, and then he locked himself in that room for about two months. Now, of course, he came out for meals and things like that. But about two months, and all he had in there was textbooks, a notebook, and a pencil and a highlighter. No computer. He is learning to be a computer programmer. Why did he do this? Because he told himself, number one, I have to teach myself to think deeply for long periods of time and to be able to learn new skills quickly. Something that most of us, if we're honest, in this day and age don't have. Those are skills that we don't have, right? We have short attention spans. We can't learn deep things Quickly. We can't concentrate for long periods of time. At first, he said this was very hard. Eventually, he worked up to where he was spending five to six hours of uninterrupted time in that room reading, writing, and speaking aloud code so that he could learn it. The second reason he did that, though, without a computer, 
was he knew if he brought a computer in there, he would be distracted, constantly distracted. How many of us are distracted all the time by our devices, our computers, checking email every second we get, checking the next thing, checking the social media, checking the, it, it's, a, it's an endless circle, distracting ourselves to death, and we can't concentrate. So he did that for those two reasons. And after those two months, he tested himself by joining an extremely competitive, intensive, over 100-hour-a-week course called Developer Boot Camp. In Developer Boot Camp, almost half of the attendees flunk out. Almost half don't finish. And so he, he wanted to see if he was ready, if he was good enough to become a programmer after that short amount of time. Well, he, he graduated Developer Boot Camp at the top of his class, ended up getting a job in Silicon Valley that paid over three times what he was making before, and he set himself up for success in his future and increased his value to society and to his employer as he set out to do. Why do I mention that? I mention that because of the drastic measures he took to take that road, to do what he set out to do. Jason Ben began living with the end in mind. He started living with his end goal in mind. And that's what Jesus is encouraging us to do today. That's what I want to encourage you to do from this text today. Can we begin to live in the moment with the end in mind? To not live in the moment for the moment or for the short-term gains that we might get, but with the end in mind. And would that change how we live? Would it cause us to do drastic things so that we can get to heaven. Let's read our text, and let me show you what I mean from the text. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 42. This is God's word. Mark records the words of Jesus, which says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand, excuse me, causes you to sin, Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another. I want to bring out a few points from our passage today. Number one, we're going to look at a dire warning And then next, we're going to look at drastic measures. And then finally, we will look at a puzzling appeal toward the end. We begin with the dire warning of Jesus in verse 42. Verse 42. Jesus and the disciples are still in the same place, the same location as they were in verses 36 and 37 of this chapter. If you look back there, verses 36 and 37, this is where Jesus took a child, put him in the midst of them, 
and said, whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me. They're still in that same setting. That can be hard for us to remember when we're going through the book of Mark like we are. We're going short chunk by short chunk. So it's been weeks since we read that verse, but right here they're still in the same place. Same conversation, same day, same time, same setting. That can be easy for us to miss as we're going through this small little bit by small little bit, Sunday by Sunday. But notice in this, this place right here in this setting that he speaks our words of our text today, he's got a child right there among them. They're already thinking in terms of children. And then he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. He, he makes a shift here. He's not just talking about children anymore. It's these little ones who believe in me. These are believers now. Believers. And perhaps he means the ones that are immature in their faith. Ones that are newer in their faith. But he's using the child in the category of children to, to lead the people around him, especially his disciples, in thinking in this way. Let's think about it ourselves. Children. Why, why does he use a child? Children are so trusting. They're so trusting. That's a big reason why we must become like children to enter the kingdom of God, right? Because children are so trusting. But it's also a big reason why they are so vulnerable. They're so vulnerable. Vulnerable to be preyed upon by wicked people. They are so trusting and so they can be easily led astray. If wicked adults decide to, they can do serious damage to children because of how trusting and vulnerable they are. The same is true for new believers. The same is true for immature believers, believers who maybe aren't as mature and as rooted in the faith as they could be or as they might be later. These kinds of believers are just like children, impressionable in their faith. Just as an adult could lead a child astray, a preacher or a Bible teacher or even, more, uh, even a more mature Christian can lead an immature or new believer astray and they can, they can lead them into sin. Think about the people out there that you might have seen who are preaching and teaching what we call the prosperity gospel. That God desires for you to be rich. That God desires for you to have every single physical malady healed. They go about teaching these things and saying things like, if you just ask with enough faith, if you just ask the Lord with enough faith, He will make you rich. He will heal every problem of yours. And what happens when people who are vulnerable, impressionable, hear teaching like this? They go home, and then they muster up all the, the faith that they can and ask God, God, that's what I want. I want you to make me rich. Or they pray and they ask God to fix their crippled legs. And then what happens when it doesn't happen? What happens when there's no money from God, when there's no riches, when there's no healing? Many of these people walk away from the Lord. And why did they walk away from the Lord? Because of that person who is teaching that lie 
from Satan. That God wants this for you, if only you would have enough faith. Some of them are being taught to pursue riches when the Bible explicitly teaches us not to. And so we should shudder, brothers and sisters, we should shudder and tremble at what awaits preachers who are teaching lies like that. In the Bible, you might think of the example of the Pharisees. Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. When Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if he were drowned with a great millstone around his neck. One of the groups of people that would have fit into that category was the Pharisees. Perhaps not every single one of them, but as a whole. Listen to what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, which is another word for convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. They go to all these lengths to get another Pharisee, another one that they can teach and train up, and then they teach them pride. They teach them to look down upon others because of their race or because of their sin. They teach them that you buy God's favor with your good works and your willpower and your discipline. They teach them to practice their religion, to be seen and admired by others. And Jesus says, it would be better if folks like that were drowned than for them to face what's coming to them in eternity. We should shudder at what awaits those who cause these little ones who believe in Jesus to sin. Now you might be thinking at this point, well, I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher. I'm not a Pharisee, so I'm safe here. Brothers and sisters, this can happen to any one of us. Anyone can cause a little one who believes in Jesus to sin. There might be a time for some of you In the future, when you consider tempting someone else to join you in sin. When you consider tempting someone else to join you in something that you know is wrong. And if you do, consider also the gravity and the weight of Jesus' warning in this verse, verse 42. Consider what a weighty and serious thing it is that others are watching each of us as we live this Christian life. If you are a Christian, your life is communicating something to those that are around you about what walking with Jesus is supposed to be like. If you're a Christian... And you have people around you who are not. Your life is communicating something to them about what walking with Christ is supposed to be like. What is it communicating? What is it teaching them? Now, this is a fierce warning, and we should take it as such. But I want you also to consider the flip side of this warning. The flip side of this warning is actually a great and deep encouragement To those of us who know that we are the little ones who believe in Jesus Christ. In a very real sense, all of us are the little ones 
who believe in Jesus Christ. Any of us who believe, and we are to become like little children as we believe and trust in Christ, then that would mean that I, and that those of you who are my brothers and sisters in Christ, we are the little ones as well. And if that's the case, one of the things that we need to see here is that Jesus cares fiercely about those who believe in him like this. He cares fiercely about us. Jesus gives this warning because he is like a good parent who wants to protect his children. I am, I hope, I think, I am a a gentle and peaceful guy most of the time. But if anyone was to attack my kids, you would see someone come out of me that you've never seen before, I think. I think that's what would happen. And parents, you understand this. We, We fiercely love our kids. We would fiercely protect them. Jesus is speaking like that kind of father here. He is speaking with the the fierce care that he has for his own children, for God's own children. And so if you are one of God's children today, consider this an encouragement to you, not just a dire warning. It is, and you need to feel that, but also a deep encouragement to all of us that Jesus cares this much about us to warn any who would come to attack us or to lead us astray, to warn them with this powerful, fierce language. Jesus cares about those who believe in him like this. And so this is Jesus' dire warning. But I move now to verses 43 and 48, 43 through 48 rather, where we see the drastic measures that Jesus says we must have if we want to enter the kingdom of God. Drastic measures. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, what are you to do? You cut it off. Because it'd be better for you to go to heaven with one hand than go to hell with two. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to go to heaven with one foot than go to hell with two. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It'd be better to go to heaven with one eye then go to hell with two. Now, if Jesus was serious about what he says here, why don't we see a bunch of one-handed, one-footed, one-eyed believers walking around? Why, Why don't we see a bunch of people like that? Let's ask that question. And the answer could be, maybe we're just not as obedient to Jesus's words as we think. Maybe we're, we're just not really following the words of Christ like we think we are. Because I don't see any of you doing this. I haven't done it. But I don't think that's what's going on here. Let me put you at ease. I don't think that's the reason. I think Jesus is using a figure of speech here, not meant to be taken literally. Now, some of you might say, well, that's easy for you to say, John. Of course you're going to say that. Because John doesn't want to lose his hand. John doesn't want to lose his foot or his eye. And John doesn't want to be the bad guy telling everybody else that they have to do the same. You remember Genesis 17? One of the most interesting passages in all the Bible. Abraham was 99 years old. And God told Abraham, I want you to circumcise yourself and your whole male household. I want you to circumcise yourself and your 13-year-old son. And then I want to go to all the men of your house and you make sure that they are circumcised. Abraham was not a popular guy that day. 
He was an unpopular man in his household that day. Maybe I'm just trying to avoid the same, some might say. Maybe John is just trying to avoid that same fate, but Abraham went all the way. Is John willing to go all the way? I don't think that's what's going on here. There's good reason to believe that Jesus is speaking figuratively. Here's why. Notice, he says, if your hand or foot or your eye, singular, cause you to sin, you get rid of them and throw them away. And why is that important? Well, because if you just get rid of one, have you taken care of the problem? Think about our eyes. Jesus even says in Matthew chapter 5, it's your right eye. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Your right hand, cut it off. Now, he might be saying your dominant, you know, your dominant one. You've got to be willing to cut off your dominant one. But think about it. Let's say, let's say you have a problem with lust, with looking at things that you shouldn't and having thoughts that you shouldn't, that don't glorify God. And you say, my, my eyes are causing me to sin. I'm going to gouge out one of them. Did you fix the problem? No. Problem's still there. You've still got another eye. You can see still. You can sin with your eyes still. Don't think that's what Jesus means. Furthermore, we know there wasn't a one of Jesus' faithful apostles who did this. None of them actually did this. Now, the problem will still be there if you cut off one hand, gouge out one eye. It's often said that if you take a thief and he loves being a thief, and he's a thief at heart, and you cut off his right hand, he'll steal with his left. You cut off his left hand, he'll steal with his teeth because you haven't dealt with the problem. What Jesus is saying here is not that we actually have to dismember ourselves, but we have to do whatever it takes to get to heaven. Are you willing to be drastic? Are you willing to get radical in killing off sin in your life? Let me put it to you in a way that all of us can understand, I think. If your smartphone is leading you into all kinds of sin, are you willing to get rid of that thing and trade it in for a dumb phone? Are you willing? You might think, oh my goodness, no. How could I ever live without my smartphone? Think of all the problems it would create if I didn't have this phone in my life. Sure, we've got to fight against sin, but... But that? Surely Jesus isn't calling me to that kind of devotion and commitment. Friends, some of us genuinely are having feelings like that right now. It's a joke on one hand, and on the other hand, very serious. It really comes down to this. What do you want more? What do you want more, to have a smartphone or to go to heaven? Now, I'm not saying that's the dichotomy for every single one of us, but it could be for some of us. It could be for you. If Jesus spoke with you, like he did the rich young man. You remember the, the, the conversation with the rich young man. The rich young man says, what, what do I need to do to be saved? Jesus says, follow the commandments. And he said, all these I've kept. What more do I still lack? That's telling right there. And then Jesus says, go sell all that you have. Give to the poor and then come and follow me. And the rich man went away sad. Because he loved his possessions more than he loved Christ. He wanted those more than he wanted to follow Jesus. Jesus saw into the heart of that man and went right for what he loved the most, right for the one thing that that he would have trouble giving up for God. And so for us, what is that? And if Jesus asked us to give up our smartphone, if Jesus said to us, go get rid of your smartphone, then come and follow me, would you, like that rich young man, walk away sad? 
Would you walk away sad? The idea is this. Do whatever it takes to cut sin out of your life because sin can lead you to hell. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 8.13. Let's take them to heart. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. He's talking about spiritual death there. Brothers and sisters, just hear that warning. If you live according to your flesh, you will die. If we continue down the road of living according to our sinful desires, we will not go to heaven. But, he says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. And so sometimes forsaking sin and truly repenting of it means getting drastic and going to war against your sin and defeating it and killing it by any means necessary. Ditching the smartphone, removing your TV from your house, getting rid of Wi-Fi in your home. Sometimes it means moving to a different city. Sometimes it means ending a relationship. Brothers and sisters, think about this in terms of people who are addicted to drugs and reach rock bottom. And they realize the only way I'm going to defeat this is if I end these relationships and move to a different place where I don't have access to these people anymore. Sometimes that happens. It happens regularly where people say, I'm going to die if I don't do this and I want to live, so I'm going to do this. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to sell my house. I'm going to end these relationships. I'm going to move to a different city. Why? Because I'll do whatever it takes to live. Will we do whatever it takes to live? That's what Jesus is asking. Let's be real, folks. Jesus might not have meant for there to be a bunch of one-handed, one-footed, one-eyed Christians walking about. But look at what he says at the end of verse 47. Let's just take verse 47. He says, It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Forget about everything else. Is that true, literally? Is that literally true? Absolutely it is. If I lose an eye and go to heaven, would I choose that over keeping both eyes and going to hell? You bet I would. If that was the choice, absolutely, it's worth it. And so any sacrifice, brothers and sisters, any sacrifice that you make now, it might seem like a big deal in the moment. It might be frustrating or painful in the short term. But if it keeps you out of hell for all eternity, it's going to be more than worth it. Let's live with that end in mind. Let's live now and think now like we will be thinking when we've been there for 10,000 years. And when we've been there for 10,000 years, we'll never look back and think, I wish I had a couple more years with that smartphone. We'll never think that way. Let's think, let's think now. And act now like, like we won't regret it in 10,000 years. Look at verse 48. Verse 48 speaks of the reality and horrors of hell, brothers and sisters. Jesus wants you to feel this warning so that you don't want to go there. So that you want to avoid it at all costs. Hell is where their worm does not die. What gets at you in hell, what attacks you, what annoys you, what keeps you up and awake, what, what makes sure that you can't rest, it never dies in hell. There is no rest day or night 
from your torment, Revelation 14 says, in hell. And he says, the fire is not quenched. It lasts forever. There is no end to it. Do not believe the lies that people peddle today that death apart from Christ is just annihilation. That you're just annihilated with no conscious existence. No, Jesus says clearly in John chapter 5, there is a resurrection coming for both the good and the wicked. There is a resurrection coming for both those who trust in Christ and those who don't. And one will be resurrected to eternal life and the other to eternal punishment. Eternal conscious suffering. In Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus, if you remember, we see the desperation of that rich man as he is in the place of torment. And he would do anything to have another chance if he could. And he would do anything to warn his family members who are still alive. He would do anything. Brothers and sisters, there is no sacrifice that is too drastic if it keeps you out of hell. Finally, I want to turn to Jesus' puzzling appeal in verses 49 through 50. It's puzzling. It really is. Look at verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. This is honestly hard to interpret. And let me just say to all of you this morning, let me just give you permission. We don't have to know with certainty what everything in the Bible means. There are some things we genuinely have trouble with. It would have been great if right after verse 49, Jesus would have said, And what I meant by that was, and then he goes on. Boy, that would help me out a lot. That would really, really be helpful right now. But he decided not to do that. And it's, it's that way with many things in Scripture. There are many things that are cryptic. There are many things that are left for us to, to wrestle with and to interpret and to try to understand. And it's all probably in the providence of God and just exactly as he willed it. But this is honestly hard to interpret. Jesus doesn't explain it with much clarity. Here's my best stab at it. As I've read and studied and tried to to get a handle on what it might mean, I think it means, I could be wrong here, so test this, take it with a grain of salt, if you will, no pun intended. But my best stab at it, everyone will be salted with fire. I think that means everyone will go through suffering and trials in this life. Everyone. We will all go through suffering and trials in this life. Everyone will. These things purify us, and they develop perseverance. What was salt for in ancient times? What was salt for? It was for purification and perseverance. Suffering and trials purify us and give us perseverance. Verse 50 said, salt is good. It's good. So to be salted with fire, I think, would mean to experience the purifying trials and sufferings of this life. If you go all the way back to the book of Leviticus, back when they used to sacrifice animals, those sacrifices, those animal sacrifices, had to be seasoned with salt. Why was that? Well, there's a lot of different reasons why it might have been. That's cryptic in and of itself, but it doesn't really matter for our purposes here today. It just matters the fact that in the Old Testament, the animal sacrifices had to be seasoned With salt, even the grain sacrifices, the grain offerings had to be seasoned with salt. In the New Testament, we are now told to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Romans 12.1, living sacrifices. And so it would make sense then that in this section where Jesus is talking about doing whatever it takes to inherit eternal life, 
when he's talking about making any sacrifice necessary to avoid hell, it would make sense then that he points out that our very lives as sacrifices to God would be seasoned with the salt of trials and suffering. And just as those Old Testament saints gave physical sacrifices that had to be seasoned with physical salt, so now God has ordained that our spiritual sacrifice of our very lives would be seasoned with the salt of suffering. We will all experience it. And it is God's will for every single one of us as we offer our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord that those sacrifices will be seasoned with the salt of trials and sufferings. Expect it, brothers and sisters. It is coming and it is God's good pleasure and good will for you. Romans 5 tells us that we we should rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. And that hope does not disappoint. We are not disappointed in that hope. In fact, Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus himself was made perfect through suffering. He was made perfect through suffering. It is for our good brothers and sisters. It is God's gift to us for our good. So whatever you are suffering right now, whatever you might be going through today, a part of that is God allowing you to go through it for your own good so that you may become more pure, so that you may become more of a persevering Christian who holds on until the end. God gives us these things so that we will not give up so that we will be those who do not give up when life comes at us, when life gets hard. And through this process of being salted with fire, we become salt ourselves. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5.13? You are the what? Not just light of the world, that's 14. Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth. We are to this earth what salt is to food. If salt gets sprinkled in and it works its way through the food, it has an effect on it. God has sprinkled us as believers in this world and we are to have an effect on it. We are lights that should shine in the darkness and we are salt that should work our way into the blandness, the blandness of life without Christ in this world. We work our way into that and we give it the the taste, if you will, that God always meant for it to have. Through us, he does this. And so in verse 50, Jesus says, don't lose your saltiness. And he doesn't mean don't lose your quick wit and your sarcasm. Not salty in that way. Don't Don't lose your ability to affect this unsalted world. Don't lose your ability to affect the people around you for Christ. Remember the first part of what Jesus says. You've always got to remember people are watching you. People who have relationships with you are being affected by your life one way or the other. What are you communicating to them about life with the Lord and life with Christ? Don't lose your saltiness. Don't hide your light and don't let yourself Become this salt that has no taste to it. 
If the salt has lost its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? It might seem like a a perplexing, confusing metaphor for us. But believe me when I say Jesus is saying to us much of what the rest of the Bible that we do understand sometimes better says. Be the, let's, let's use this one because it's much the same. Be the lights in the world that actually shine for the Lord in this dark place that does not have the light of truth. That's what we can be. That's what Jesus is asking us to be. All of this happens, though, in accordance with that middle part of the text. That that if we are holy and righteous, and if we are living in such a way where we are working to rid our lives of sin, then we can be the shining lights that God has called us to be. Jesus died on the cross not only to forgive you of your sins, but to give you the means to defeat it, to free you from sin's dominion in your life. Understand that. Sometimes we miss that. Sometimes we we focus so hard on the fact that Jesus died to forgive us of our sins, but I'm I'm a sinner, so there's nothing I can do about it. I'm I'm glad I have the forgiveness, but I'm just a sinner. I've, I've resigned myself to that for the rest of my life. I'm just going to sin. Sometimes we use that as a way to not do the work that we have been called on to kill sin in our lives. But Jesus didn't just die for your forgiveness. He died not only for your forgiveness, but he died to set you free and to give you power against sin inside of yourself if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Jesus died so that you could have his Spirit living inside of you. And that Spirit, part of what it's there for, is not just to to love people, but to kill sin. That's what it's for. Jesus died for this. And so this is not just some ancillary part of the Christian life. This is the Christian life. This is it. What are we going to do with that power that Jesus has given us? What are we going to do with the spirit inside of us? Brothers and sisters, let us use it to kill sin in our lives and to become holy so that we can be the salt of the earth and the light's of the world. Right now, we want to give an opportunity for all of us to go to the Lord and to pray to him and to respond to him in our own ways from what he has just laid on our hearts. He spoke to us, now we speak to him. And so this is a time, just a few moments of silent prayer individually. We ask that you go to the Lord and respond to him for what he, he's laid on your hearts. After we have this time of individual response where we all pray, then we'll come back together. We'll have our invitation time where anyone who needs to respond to God's word in a public way can do so at that time. So before that, for a few moments, let's pray together.